Up next, the story of Hitler's hat, an encore airing of WAMC's Alan Shartok in conversation with Richard Marowitz, a Jewish-American soldier in World War II who found Hitler's hat in the German dictator's Munich apartment. Alan Shartok, World War II veteran Richard Marowitz, and the story of Hitler's hat. It's next. Hi, this is Alan Shartok, and this is a very special conversation. For the next hour, we'll be talking to Richard Marowitz, who is an Albanian, but who has a very special distinction. Forever, in addition to being a great human being, he's going to be known as the man who found Hitler's hat. <laughs> and he did. And it is not only the finding of that hat that makes him remarkable. It's the story that leads up to that. Richard, a professional musician, a guy who has stories to tell that could take up several hours and would be well worth listening to for several hours. But we've only got an hour, Richard. So first of all, welcome. Thank you. I'm glad I'm here. And second of all, let's have fun and let's sort of see where this takes us. Take us back to the time that you were 18 years old. What were you doing? 18 years old, the day I turned 18 in Dallas, Texas, I was in the draft board uh, signing up. But what were you doing for a living? I was uh, on the road with a band. I became a professional musician when I was 16. Yeah. And I went on the road when I was 17. And um, I got drafted off of the road, uh, effectively. And how did that happen? I mean, how did you find out you were drafted? Well, um, I I was uh, in Houston, Texas at the time. And there was a 2 o'clock in the morning when I got in from work. Uh, there was a note in my uh, box at the hotel, and it was a panic call from my sister. And I called her back immediately. In and, Brooklyn. In Brooklyn. And she wanted to know where the questionnaire was. Apparently, she had sent the questionnaire to me and was following me around on what the road. What questionnaire? To fill out, to go into a draft board. And this is on the basis of this. They draft you into the Army. Mm-hmm. And at the time, we're talking World War II, everybody was getting drafted, right? Everybody was getting drafted. This wasn't some go, some don't go. This was pretty much everybody goes. Uh, yeah, unless you uh, needed a wheelchair. Or <laughs> if you... you were warm, they took you. Yeah. Yeah. So you're Jewish, right? Oh, yeah. Did you have any sense? In fact, you've been the president of your synagogue. and um, Did you have any, any, any sense at the time as a very young man what was really going on in Europe and whether what was going on made a special difference to you as a soldier in the United States? Uh, no, we, none of us knew. As a matter of fact, the day we took Dachau, we were the first ones, in, my platoon was the first ones in Dachau. I, I didn't know until we got there. I don't want you to jump the gun because we're going to get there. That's <laughs> some story. Rich. Okay. That is some story. So where'd you go to train? Camp Croft, South Carolina, a camp outside of Spartanburg. Mm-hmm. They was known at the time as the toughest infantry camp in the country. Beautiful place, but mean as hell. <laughs> when you say mean, how mean? And can you tell us something about it? Yeah, well, it had slipped. When I got there, it had slipped to third place, and they brought in a new commander who was job was to bring it back up to first place. As the meanest, you mean? Yes, as the <laughs> toughest. Right. And um, he went too far the other way, so far that guys were ending up in the hospital. He was actually burning the guys out. And uh, it was just day and night, day and night. You were a young Jew in in the South. Mm -hmm. I've heard a lot of stories about how that was. Was it it different? It was different. I had been in the South 
before on the road with a band. So I had already been indoctrinated to everything being black and white. And I got thrown off a bunch once because I like to sit in the back of the bus and the <laughs> bus driver threw me off. And we had a few words besides. So I was, I knew about that. I never had any problem. Um, as a Jew. As a Jew in the Army. Maybe because uh, I was good as anybody else in the, in the area. I mm-hmm. was a wiry, hot-tempered character myself. And uh, I had one incident and he crossed the street after that. I just never had any problems after that. Mm-hmm. There, was a, there was one fella, a real nice guy from Alabama who had never met a Jew before in his life. And this is kind of strange. It was strange to me. And when his wife came to the camp to visit, he broke his neck getting us together and he uh, explaining to her that this guy is a Jew and he's okay. Yeah. And we got along really well. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. So I, I never had... Really never had any problems. So you were a trumpet player, yes? Yeah. And you had to audition to get into James C. Petrillo's union, didn't you? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, yeah. And how did that work? I mean, you, you went down, down there and they tested you, didn't they? Yeah, back in those days, uh, they they were, I think they were a little harder on me because of my brother. But I sat in front of three guys and they just kept throwing stuff on the music stand and you sight read it off and you play it. That's it. Theoretically, they say... If you carry a union card, you should be able to go to any kind of a job and play any kind of a music because you're a professional. Hmm. And that's the reason for it. So here you are, a very fine trumpet player. Your brother was in Harry James's band, yes? Correct. And you met Harry James? Oh, yeah, nice guy. Uh, nice guy. And uh, you now are drafted. Did you ever think that they might use you in an army band? Well, when I was drafted, you take a bunch of tests. And uh, after the test, I was sitting in front of this sergeant, and he was going through my papers, and he said, "Uh, you did very well on these tests. You can do almost any job you want in this army. I said, I would like to get into a band. And he said, they're all closed. I said, well, uh, so what do I do now? He says, well, you can be a bugler. That'll keep your lip up. I said, fine, put me in as a bugler. And you see, this was actually a very stupid move. Because On your part? Oh, yeah. yeah. Because I really didn't know that a bugler in World War II was a scout and message center runner. Oh, really? Yeah, that's not a good job to have. Did you do blow taps and, uh, and reveling? Yeah. Well, if I was kind of lucky. I didn't touch the horn during basic training because... Did you bring you, it with you? No, uh-huh. no, no. I didn't bring it with me because I didn't know what was going to happen. And we were sent to the specialist side of camp. So the first seven weeks, you get the infantry training you're supposed to get in 14 weeks. And then this next seven weeks, you're supposed to go and learn the code converter and message center work and how to be a scout and all this other stuff. Uh, After the first seven weeks, they said, you have a pass for a weekend to go to town. But on Monday, we start the seven weeks over again because they need riflemen overseas. They don't need specialists. So it took a few days to gather the troops who went over the hill. Right. <laughs> because it, that first seven weeks was a killer. So I don't regret it because I was fine-tuned and I was hard as a rock and I did everything on instinct and it really helped me when I got into the INR platoon. Well, not jumping ahead too far, but you saw a lot of guys die in that, in that action who were oh, right yeah. next to you, right? Yeah, well, our platoon had a 75% turnover. Whoa. 
Well, Richard, and I think I should point out that we're talking to Richard Marowitz, who, for want of a better description, is the man who found Hitler's hat and who took revenge on that hat, and that story is coming up as we go further. So now they send you over, right? I mean, you just... Oh, skip, yeah, yeah. What well, year they, is this? They sent me, after basic training, they sent me to Camp Gruber, Oklahoma, to join the Rainbow Division. Now, what's the name of that camp? Camp Gruber. Camp Gruber. Oklahoma. Uh-huh. As a matter of fact, our reunion is going to be uh, in Tulsa next July, which is right near right. Camp Gruber. Well, I sent there to join the Rainbow Division. Their bugler was unfit for overseas duty, so I took his place. And it was there I finally blew taps and all those other calls. And uh, I found out one time that the guys were staying up to hear me play taps because they never uh-huh. had a professional playing taps before. And I played it on my own horn. So it was it was a kick. Um, well, how old were you? When, 18. And what year was it? That was 1944. Okay, so the war had been going on. Mm-hmm. We were sort of two years away from the end of the war, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But there was still a lot of fighting to be done. Oh, yeah. So what happened? Well, uh, I went over with the rainbow. And there was a lot of confusion about the rainbow. There still is to this day. The rainbow division didn't go over as a division. The three infantry regiments went over first without any support. Mm-hmm. And it was called Task Force Linden because the general in charge of the task force, his name was General Linden. Mm-hmm. And so we had to be attached to other divisions for support because we didn't have our own artillery or our own armor or anything. So we kept bouncing back between the 3rd Army and the 7th Army. The 3rd Army was Patton's Army. And we got there. We landed in Marseille at the end of November 1944. And there's a famous date in World War II, December 16th. That's the beginning of the Battle of the Bulge. As I say, we were attached to the Third Army from time to time. And we are at the bottom of that bulge. A lot of people think Bastogne was the bulge. The bulge was over 80 miles long. So it, uh, there's a, a lot more involved than just Bastogne. And George Patton was running the Third Army? Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So uh, we got involved in the, in the little piece of the southern tip of the bulge. And two weeks later, New Year's Eve, January 1st, 1945, Hitler pulled another switch. He was losing it in the Battle of the Bulge in Belgium. And so he attacked at the bottom of that Alsace-Lorraine with his operation called Operation North Wind, where we all took a bath, including the 101st Infantry, um, 101st Airborne. And You um, say took a bath. What do you mean? Well, for example, we were green. Mm-hmm. Theoretically, you go, they send you to a quiet front. You go to college to become a doctor, mm-hmm. but you become an intern to learn how to become, to learn your trade, really. Mm-hmm. Um you learn how to be a soldier, you learn how to fire your weapons and all of that stuff, but you don't really learn how to really fight until you get into the line and get what they call the baptism of fire. Well, we were spread out on a quiet front. A regiment covered a battalion front. We were so thinly spread out that the Germans actually walked through us. Mm-hmm. So Company E went out with uh, over 200 men and came back with six. And I remember going... So it was unexpected. You guys were green, and you got murdered. Our officers were green. They didn't know what they were doing either. Yeah, and you got murdered by this switch. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. That was our baptism of fire. We learned pretty fast. So then what happened? Then uh, a lot of things happened. 
And then the INR platoon ran into a snag, and they lost some guys, and I knew the guys, and they were shorthanded, but they had to maintain their... They still had to do the same operation. Sorry for interrupting. What, what was the INR? Oh, intelligence and reconnaissance. Okay. We were regimental intelligence and reconnaissance. Small platoon, travels in jeeps, 28 men, seven jeeps. Hmm. Had our own medic because the regimental headquarters had their aid station anyway. And um, we needed our own medic. And our job was to go find the enemy, take prisoners and do whatever you can do, and report back to... Headquarters. 28 guys. 28 guys. And, uh, so, uh, <laughs> and we did not have any armor. As a matter of fact, according to the book, the book was written by some major sitting in his office for 50 years, I think, I'm surmising this, who really never faced the line. According to the book, an INR platoon has one thirty caliber machine gun, one fifty caliber machine gun, a one three hundred radio and one six ninety four radio to contact the artillery, et cetera. And um, that was it. Well, you can't operate that way. When we got through liberating some other equipment, we had a radio on every Jeep. We had a machine gun on every Jeep. Wow. <laughs> and mm -hmm. um, we had bazookas and grease guns and everything else and mortars on our feet, were you on the floor. Were you under a lieutenant? Yes, Lieutenant Short, phenomenal guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah, for now, his father was General Short, and this guy, he was a wiry guy, nicest guy in the world, and I used to yell at him. I mean, mm -hmm. he would stand up like George Washington in front of the <laughs> boat, you know, and he'd you guys go over there, and you guys go over there, and I would say, get down, you know, and I mean, you're, everything is buzzing by, and, and but he was, <laughs> he was a pip. Did he survive he survived. Yeah. yeah, he died just about four or five years ago. I think. Right, right, yeah. right. Uh, he was great. As a matter of fact, I'll tell you how great he was. We got a new S two was intelligence. Mm -hmm. uh, we got a new captain in charge of S two. I think he made a mistake in Cannon Company, so they gave him to us. He was really dummy, and <laughs> <laughs> and he wanted to go out and see how his we were we were under intelligence. Uh, so um, he wanted to see how he wanted to come out with us to see how we operated. So he came out, and he had this Italian Mauser or something, some blunderbuss. And we got into a little skirmish, and he flopped down next to me, and he had that thing right next to my left ear. And he fired it, and I thought the top of my head was going to come off. It was painful. And um, when we got through with our little business, I stood up, and I reamed him out. I called him everything you can possibly think of. And he says, your fanny is court-martialed. When we get back... You forget it, baby. So Lieutenant Short walked over to him. He says, I saw what you did, Captain. You shouldn't have done that, Captain. You're not going to do a thing to this kid. As a matter of fact, you're going to be kind to him. If you want to go home from this, you're going to leave him alone. And the captain never walked near me again. <laughs> That's great. And I'm sure it didn't hurt that the, the lieutenant's father was the general. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. But uh, he was great. He stood yeah. up for us guys. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so now you're moving ahead. It's yeah. 1945. Yeah. Early 1945? Yeah. And you're moving ahead. Take us the next step. Oh, the next step was going through Alsace-Lorraine, then getting into Germany. What was that like uh, when you finally were in Germany? Well, when we first got into Germany, it was, it was Passover time. Yeah. And all of a sudden, all the Jewish guys were called off the line. And the Rainbow Division had produced little Haggadahs. <laughs> really? 
took us all off the line to this big barn somewhere. Haggadah, for the people who are listening to us, is the book that comes with the Passover service. Yeah. Story of and Passover. And they had a regular service with, with some food, mm-hmm. and they had Germans waiting on us. Mm. And as soon as we got through with that, they threw us back in the, the trucks and the jeeps, and they took us back to the line, and that was... Now, by the time was, you got to Germany, Richard, uh, did you have any sense yet of what was going on with the camps and the rest of it? No. Still not? No. Okay, so now you're in Germany, you're doing your thing. People are dying, right? Oh, yeah. Tell us about how that felt to have a buddy standing next to you who ends up dead. Well, this is pretty hard to explain. And it's also, uh, I've never been able to explain it adequately. I really haven't. Because they tell you, don't become too friendly with anybody, Mm. which is impossible. Mm -hmm. In our case, we depended on each other. I mean, our lives were, you know... Well, you love each other to this day, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. But you can't let anything stop you or sway you because you have to keep going and doing the same thing. I mean, if somebody in the morning, they say, this is where you're going. Here's a new map. Take off. You do it. You really can't. You see it. You see it happen. You know it happens. You try to drag them undercover. You can do all kinds of things, but you still have to survive. Can you just take us down a side road here? And introduce us to your platoon. Oh, yeah. We had, I would say, the best bunch of men I've ever met in my life. Dave Bell was a squad leader. I didn't work his squad all the time. We you know, we kind of mushed around. Uh, squad leader is the sergeant? Or? He's a, Dave was a sergeant. Yes. Dave uh, was just a great guy. Cool guy. Intelligent. Um, How old was he then? Oh, Dave was a couple of years older than me. So he may have been in his twi- early 20s. Yeah, yeah, he was in his early 20s, yeah. There, was no old, there weren't any old men around. Um, and uh, he knew where he was going, and you had total confidence in Dave. Mm-hmm. Ding Dong, he was called. Because his last name was Bell. Right. Uh, Herb Herman was, um, this is interesting, you mentioned Jews. This, I think, is a high percentage of Jews in the INR platoon. Of the 28 men, three were Jewish. Herb Herman, Sid Schaffner, and me. Hmm. And None this, of us ever had a problem. Now, this platoon were the 28 guys who got Jeeps and who went to find the enemy, to recapitulate if you're yeah. just joining us, and to come back and uh, report where the enemy was, but to engage the enemy. You weren't yeah. just supposed to look at them. You're supposed to engage them. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, you find them, and sometimes they find you before you find them. Right. You know, you come out of the woods or on the road, and you make a little turn in the road, and, and all of a are. sudden somebody's firing at you, you know. Right. It just happens that way. Sid was a was a, a kooky guy, but dead serious. It was like one solid group that uh, there were no weak spots. Now you had a German in your platoon. Oh, Fritz! I had to go back to the CP to pick him up. He came over as What's a replacement, a command post. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I had to pick him up. He was a replacement. So I got in the jeep, went to the command post, and a bunch of guys on a two and a half ton truck, and I called out Fritz Krenkler. And this guy came out of the truck. He looked German. He sounded German. He still had a little accent. His father got them out of Germany at the end. I mean, after that, the doors really clinked shut. So he went to the States. He went to school. Um, He wasn't a German Jew. He was a German. German. Yeah. Yeah, German. And he got drafted, and they sent him back. Now, we needed guys like him because he was a great interpreter. So I picked him up, and the Jeep... Going back to the platoon, he said to me, what am I supposed to do? I have family here. I have relatives here. I can't shoot at these people. And I said, well, Fritz, don't worry about it. 
things happen naturally over here. <laughs> uh, don't worry about it now. So um, the next day, we get into a skirmish. The Germans have us pretty well pinned down. They're hollering for us to give up. Hopgaben, Hopgaben. And, and uh, Fritz didn't know what the hell to do first. You know, He dropped his weapon getting out of the Jeep. I had a forty-five, which I wouldn't wish on anybody, and I didn't want it, so I gave it to Fritz. What was wrong with the forty-five? The forty-five automatic. You couldn't hit the broadside of a barn. <laughs> I'll tell you the truth. I fired at the broadside of a barn and missed. <laughs> <laughs> that actually happened. It ejected from the side, and it was such. It kicked your arm, you know, way over to the side, and and um, I picked up a German Luger. This was a gorgeous, beautiful, well-machined, magnificent weapon. Where'd you get it? Off of a German that didn't need it anymore. And did you, and did you take these bullets, too? Did you oh, any? yeah. I had the whole thing. The holster had a couple of extra clips, a couple extra grips, and a great piece of work. And somebody in my wife's family was in the gun business for a while, and he paid us a visit one day, and I said, take a look at this. Tell me if it's any good. He says, it's phenomenal. He broke it down. And you know those things are hand they're hand they're hand finished those uh, lugers and the parts are all numbered and all the numbers matched he says this is a great piece he says don't lose this he says if you get rid of it get a lot of money for it so um, it was great and that I don't give away you know that, that's yeah. another but after we got through with the well the getaway jeep took off and came back with uh, some you you jumped ahead what's the getaway jeep ah <laughs> uh, the last Jeep in the line is called the getaway Jeep. So here, are driving down the road. There are several. How many Jeeps in the 28 men? Seven. Seven Jeeps. And the last guy is called the getaway Jeep. Why? Because if, I mean, the first Jeep usually what, you know, gets the problem, the, first, the beginning of the column. Um, That's where the lieutenant rides? Uh, no. Mm. No, no, no. Most of the time, the lieutenant isn't with us. Oh, I see. Most of the time, believe it or not, yeah. we don't even operate full strength. We operate in two squads, three Jeeps, 12 men in each squad, on parallel roads, and the lieutenant follows behind, keeps in touch with us by radio, and uh, follows us. We give him the grid coordinates and Mm -hmm. all this other stuff, and he knows approximately where we are. And if he gets a call from somebody else, because he's got the big radio, the 694, from headquarters that uh, something else should be looked at, then he'll swing us. But if we get in the jam, the la- whether it's a squad or whether it's the whole platoon, the last Jeep is called a getaway Jeep. And that Jeep generally can get away and go back for help. So in this case, the getaway Jeep took off, came back with the Rainbow Rangers, and together we were able to wipe out the machine gun nests and whatever else was around. And that same day, that was in the morning, that same day, we get into this village that didn't give us too much trouble. There were a few snipers around because the rest of the village, it was a very small village. And Fritz was running up and down the street, crying, screaming in German, calling him everything you could think of. And um, from that day, from that day on, Fritz was not bashful. He would shoot at anything that moves, <laughs> relatives or not. So he was a great guy. He still is a great guy. <laughs> I noticed something in your description as you speak to us. You don't speak in the past tense. You speak in the present tense. So I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but you say... No, I never did. In other words, instead of saying, we used to or we did, you say, we, and then you use the present tense. We fire at them, we do this. What is that? 
I I never realized it before. Are you still? Was it had such impact that it is still present for you? Um, maybe some things, but I don't think all all the things. Uh, but uh, but these, uh, you know, you you just can't possibly forget. Um, I'll bet you can. These guys. I'll bet you can't. So now here you are, and you're advancing through Germany, and uh, I'm interested in something. I've heard a lot of stories over the years about not taking prisoners, about SS men who you found an SS man or people found SS men and they killed them. I once had a music teacher who would tell me some of these stories from the infantry. Is it so? It happened, not with everybody and not, not all the time. It happened on occasion. Everybody, you know, talks about atrocities, like we never caused any, you know, which is nonsense. If you uh, you go ahead and you draft millions of guys and you train them to kill, now, some of them would have been killers if you didn't draft them and train them in mm. the first place. Right now you're giving them the ammunition and the equipment. Now some guys are just a fraction off their rocker, so you put them in in a, in a situation where they can do damage. Um, who's controlling it? So there were atrocities on both sides. Nowhere near what the Japanese did or nowhere near what the Germans did, maybe. But there were things that happened. Were you able to differentiate between the common German soldier and uh, Gestapo or SS person? Oh, there was a huge difference. Uh, The regular German soldier, the Wehrmacht, they were like us. They didn't want to be there either. They were great. (laughs) But the SS were impossible. They were just absolutely impossible. And they try to get away with stuff, too. And if um, and if an SS man stepped out of line, most of the guys wouldn't hesitate. You mean after they were captured? Yeah. Do what we tell you to do, period. Right. And, uh, and and they, they better do it. Let me just yeah. backtrack a little bit because people tune in and out, and I just want to announce that we're talking to Richard Marowitz, who's an American soldier from the Intelligence and Reconnaissance Platoon of the Rainbow Division during World War II. But he's gained some fame as the man who found Hitler's hat. Not to trivialize that at all, because the rest of your experiences may have even been more important than this highly symbolic thing which happened and we're getting there. Now you're moving ahead in Germany. Some dramatic things happened. What were some of them? I think the most dramatic uh, was um, concentration camps. Now this Uh, is something you knew nothing of, right? No. No, no, no. You know... Little villages had three or four prisoners who they used to clean the streets and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Subcamps, they're called. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of subcamps. Now, we ran across those. So who were those prisoners? Jewish, Italian, Greek, um, uh, maybe even Germans. So who these were, were slave labor, really? Yeah, slave labor. They even had the striped uniforms mm-hmm. uh, as the same as they had in the concentration camps. But they were in relatively good shape. On the 29th of April, 1945, now we're pretty close to the end of the war, which was do you the know beginning this, of May. Do you know that you're getting close to the end of the war? Well, we had a pretty good idea because things were getting a little easier and we were getting more prisoners e- more easily. Uh-huh. People were sort of falling in. Yeah, I've heard yeah. stories that a lot of those prisoners wanted to make sure they were taken by the Americans and not by the Russians. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, because the Russians were knocking them off like crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we weren't anywhere near that area. The guys who were closer to Berlin, you know, m- closer to where the Russians were, mm-hmm. 
know more about that than I would because of, uh, we didn't come in contact with the Russians, really. Sure. But one very early in the morning, we were shook out of bed and, and brought into the command post. <laughs> and um, there were two German soldiers there, and they gave us new maps, and they said these two Germans were recently over the road from where we are to Dachau. And Dachau, we looked at the map. There's a village of Dachau on, on the map. And um, they said, and this is typical of the Army, we're in a race with the 3rd Division and the 45th Division. The 45th was on our right, I think, and the 3rd was on our left. And we have to win. So these guys know where, these Germans know where the mines are, and so you put them on the hood of the first Jeep and take off. And we were operating full strength that day. Did those two German soldiers want to cooperate, or did they have, just have no choice? They or? had no choice. They yeah. had no choice. We didn't use them much. We threw them away. We, yeah. we just kicked them off the Jeep and said, walk back. Walk back and... Yeah, and, walk back. You know, I'll tell you why. Every two minutes, they had us on the, on the uh, radio. What's your grid coordinates? Where are you? You're going too slow. You're going too... And they were pushing us like crazy. Now... Listen to this. They had the infantry loaded in two-and-a-half-ton trucks. They weren't walking. Our job was to f make contact with the tail end of the 20th Armor, who was point on this operation, and be liaison between the, t the armor and the infantry coming behind us. Mm -hmm. We're supposed to go there fast. So we finally stopped. We threw the Germans off the team, <laughs> and Lieutenant Short said, we have a choice. We can go tactfully, or we can step on the gas and go like hell. That way, maybe we stand a better chance because everything will, you know, mm -hmm. be a surprise. So um, we all said the same thing. Let's step on the gas. Everybody in the back of us will be happy. We'll win the race. <laughs> and that'll be the end of that. Now, nobody ever told us that Dachau was a concentration camp. Do you think your leaders knew? They definitely knew. Mm -hmm. They knew. And I guess it was a big prize, and that's why there was a race. So a lot of things happened. It was the day to remember. And when we relate it, sometimes people look at us with a little fish eye because they say, well, these guys are making this up. Or they look at you with some tears in their eyes. Well, let me put it to you this way. We went right straight through a German convoy going across a road, firing as we went through. You're kidding me. No, I'm not kidding you. There was another incident with a German convoy who was going in the opposite direction on a parallel road, and we did the same thing with them, and we just kept right on going. Amazing. We, we went through one village, one village as we came upon it. I know this is going to sound crazy, but this is the way we were. Um, we were fired on. There was a little knoll, little hill off to the right, so we grabbed all our junk out of the bottom of the Jeep and... We fired on the village. Now, we can make a lot of noise. Junk meaning your guns. Yeah, yeah. Well, we had a bazooka <laughs> yeah. and a mortar, a 16-millimeter mortar, and a lot of machine guns, and we fired like crazy. And the Germans in the village probably thought they got hit by the front of a division, you know. Then Lieutenant Short stood up like George Washington and said, this is unbelievable, but it's true. Three men assault the town. <laughs> Larry Hancock and myself uh, were usually on, on the Point Jeep with the Point Scouts. So Larry and I and Howard Hughes 
uh, who was a great BAR man. The BAR is what a... Browning mm -hmm. Automatic Rifle. Mm -hmm. And um, we went in and cleared the first few houses and waved the rest of the guys in. And we lined up, I think it was 180-some-odd prisoners, Ooh. broke up their weapons, told them to put their hands on their heads and walk back up the road. Well, what are we going to do Just with them? Just left them there. What are we going to do with them? They were still hollering and said, you got to go. you got to win the race. But by this time, <laughs> did, these, did these Germans, they, were, they sort of knew the game was up too, right? They knew the game was up. We didn't get much of a battle out of them. That was, that was not a problem. Yeah. They were more scared than we were because we didn't know what happened. You know, we didn't know how many were there. We had no idea there were that many there. And God knows what they thought because we were firing tons on that. <laughs> we made a lot of noise. What a bluff. Anyway, yeah. we went through another village. We, we just barreling through the village, and a, a um, German behind a bush fired a Panzerfaust. That's a, like a German bazooka. It's a one-man deal. Better than ours. And uh, it went over our heads and blew up on the other side of the Jeep, and blew us out of the Jeep. So that was uh, Herb Herman, myself, Larry. Who else was with us? The driver, I forgot who was driving that day. And, and this I don't remember. I didn't remember until Herb Herman reminded me of it. I was getting back in the Jeep, and I felt something sticking me in my leg. And I reached down and pulled out a little piece of shrapnel. Mm. And Herb said to me, this is what Herb said. He, he remembered this, and I didn't. He says, I told you, let me call Pete the medic. And you said to me, I cut myself shaving worse than this this morning. And you got back in the Jeep laughing. Now, I don't remember that at all. That could have been nerves, you know, <laughs> tension. But these are the things that happened until we got to Dachau. So tell us, you're, you're, you get back in the Jeeps, and you're heading towards Dachau. Yeah, we're still going, like a bat out of hell. And we had a few more incidents until we got to Dachau. We hit the outskirts of Dachau, got pinned down. They fired 88s at us. 88. This 88 was a phenomenal weapon. The German 88 was anti-aircraft. It was uh, artillery. They used it against personnel. It was a very versatile weapon. And uh, we were pinned down for about three hours while the rest of the troops came up to us. The main incident in that little bit was that an American... M4 tank came out of Dachau, and we got out of the ditch. And then the gun came down on us. Yeah. The Germans had captured an American tank. But at that instant, an American tank destroyer came up behind us and blew it away. How did you know it was a, it was an American tank? Because there were dead Germans on the inside. We knew it was an American tank. It had the star No, I mean, it. how did you know that the Germans had taken over an American tank? You weren't firing We didn't guys. know. But the guys in the tank destroyer knew that there were no American tanks in there. Amazing. So Amazing. they didn't hesitate. They just saw it and blew it. It's one of those times you would have been dead if that hadn't happened. Yeah, but it's also the first time I ever kissed a tank. <laughs> <laughs> but we smelled smells uh. all the time we were there. Of course, dead, anim dead farm animals. Were there a lot of dead farm animals? Yeah. Artillery, strafing, Air Force strafing. And so the stink of the dead animals was in the air? You know, from time to time you run across it. Now, as we approached Dachau... We assumed mm -hmm. that we were coming on another farm. We had no idea that that smell was coming out of Dachau. Actually, on a siding, before getting into the camp, there, on a siding, there were 40 boxcars of bodies that they had brought to Dachau to burn. Mm -hmm. You saw them? Hmm. So that was, that's, that's what made me a little bit excited about going into Munich the next day. And that's why the hat got smashed. That's a good opportunity to talk about who we're talking to, Richard Marowitz, and we're talking to him about 
his remembrances, his activities in the Second World War as a member of the Intelligence and Reconnaissance Platoon in the Rainbow Division. And Richard, before we talk about Munich, let's talk a little bit more, if we can, about what you, a Jewish soldier, experienced when you came into Dachau. What were your feelings? Um, I can't even describe it. I can't even describe it. I didn't get sick. Mm-hmm. But the smell and the bodies, because they were just dropping dead in front of you. What made you, I mean, did you know at that point that you were looking at Jews? We knew. Mm-hmm. Then we knew. Mm-hmm. Tell us about the camp itself. You, you got to the camp. I didn't spend much time in the camp. Sure. They had already picked out another mission for us, and that was to scout the road to Munich. Right. So we really didn't have time to do much as far as the camp was concerned. Furthermore, I didn't want to go further into the camp. I saw enough in a minute and a half that I, I didn't need to go investigate it further. Sure. Uh, so, so I really did not go, you know, I had one foot in and I looked around and I got the hell out of there. Were you angry? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And you were really personally angry. Oh, yeah. Okay, so now you get your orders and it's off to Munich. Yeah. Tell me about that. Yeah. Well, the next morning, back to the command post... There were two big German civilians, two big guys. And we were told that they were spies, our spies. These guys had been filtering out information from Munich, and um, they knew where Hitler's house was. Were you in Munich by now? No, we were still in Dachau. Dachau. Mm -hmm. We were in the village of Dachau. I see. So these spies said, we know where Hitler's house is. Right. In Munich. And they also told us that the people of Dachau wanted to give up. They didn't want any more damage. They knew that uh, the war was over with for all practical purposes. So uh, they said that my squad, 12 men, three jeeps, was to go into Munich and go with these guys to go to Hitler's house. So we said to these guys, Well, you said that the people of Dachau wanted to give up. Did the people of Munich also want to give up, you think? I mean, the people, I meant to say the people of Munich. Got it. Okay. So uh, we said to these guys, you know, who was there? I mean, what should we expect in there? So they said, only some SS snipers. That's all? <laughs> I said, anybody else? <laughs> they said, well, if, you, if we run into any trouble, there's a bunch of guys going to jump up with white armbands. They're on our side. We got it set up. I said, okay. Well, we went in. We heard a shot every now and then, but there was no, no real resistance, no problem. But it was, it was, on the other hand, it was very eerie. Well, were there other Americans in there before you? Nobody. We were the first ones in. No kidding. Just okay. 12 of us. Wow. Now, the bridges were blown. I forgot the name of the river that goes through Munich. Uh, there was one bridge that wasn't blown, and that was a footbridge just wide enough for a jeep to go across. Mm. And you had to go up a lot of steps. <laughs> yeah. Like the steps in front of the Capitol in Washington. Right. To get to the bridge. So we put the Jeeps in four-wheel drive, low, low, and we went up the steps across the bridge and down the other side. Wow. And we got to Hitler's house, and we banged down the door, and finally this tall, stately woman with pepper and salt hair calling us ruffians. <laughs> she was angry. Wanted to know what everybody's, why everybody was so mad at Mr. Hitler. He was such a fine man. So Herb said, Rich, I'm throwing her down. And he, there's another word I can't use in between there, <laughs> the stairs. <laughs> and um, I said, forget about it. Let us do what we have to do and get the hell out of here. 
So we all ran into different rooms. Uh, by the way, was this an apartment house or was it a was it a house? It was it was a an apartment really. It was a I don't think it was quite a like maybe a townhouse, not even a townhouse, more yeah. like an apartment house. It was nothing classy about it. Although this is the place where he met with Chamberlain and all of the other big shots. Uh, this was his favorite place. Munich was his home. Mm-hmm. This is you know this was his this this is where he was comfortable. The furniture was plain but rich. I mean, he stole the best. There's no two ways about it. But it wasn't ornate ornate or anything like that. Everything was there. The pictures were on the wall. So I ran into a bedroom. I didn't know it was his, although the furniture was great. And I pulled open all the drawers, and they were empty. And I went over to the closet, which was empty, and I saw something dark on an upper shelf. So I dragged over a chair, climbed up, got this gorgeous hat, looked inside, saw A.H. Now, this is a top hat. Top hat. Top hat. Saw A.H., pictured his head in the hat, threw it on the floor, jumped off the chair on the hat, and stomped it to about, when it was about eight or nine inches high, it ended up about three-quarters of an inch high. Have you ever regretted that moment of stomping on a hat? No. No. As a matter of fact... You were angry. Oh, more than that. And then afterwards, after I realized, you know, how stupid it was... <laughs> um, when I walked out of the room with Hitler's hat on, strutting around, and I didn't remember this either. Herb Herman reminded me of this, doing a little shtick on uh, Charlie Chaplin doing uh, Hitler. Hitler. But I don't remember it, but that's what Herb said I did, so I believe Herb. The whole day was a strange day, you know. Of course, shortly after that, the rest of the troops came in, and uh, that was the end of Munich. Richard, you've been quoted many times as saying that you think you may have indirectly been responsible for Hitler's suicide. I know it's a joke, but could you tell us about that? Yes. Sometime after I got the hat, somebody said to me, what about the coincidence of you stomping on Hitler's hat on April 30th, 1995? The same, 1945. 19, excuse me, 1945, the same day that Hitler and Eva Braun, his girlfriend, committed suicide in a bunker in Berlin. And I said, naturally, when he heard that some skinny Jewish kid stomped all over his favorite hat, he committed suicide. And what'd you Uh, do with a hat? Well, I put it in my duffel bag. Mm -hmm. Word got around, and it finally reached division headquarters. By this time, the war was over. I was wondering about (laughs) this part of it. Go ahead. It finally reached division headquarters, and um, this is like two or three weeks after the war was over, and this... um, Photographer, the division photographer showed up at regimental headquarters company and uh, inquired who was the nut that had the hat. And they pointed him at me, and he, uh, I was in the house that we took over for our billet. And he took a picture of me with the hat on, and which ended up in the division history book. And that's pretty strange, too, because for years, for 50-some-odd years, People were looking in the division history book and seeing this picture of this cuckoo with Hitler's hat on. They didn't know it was Hitler's hat. With a hat on. Just with a hat. With a comb under his nose. For, and the didn't. comb, for those who are listening, <laughs> simulated Charlie Chaplin in you know The Little Dictator looking, you looked like Hitler. Yeah. The comb yeah, was to the make it. With the comb under the nose for the Hitler's mustache. And they didn't know what that picture was doing in the book because they forgot to caption it. Mm. And it wasn't until... 1995, actually, when I went to reunion. The reunion that year was in Seattle. Is there a reunion every year? Every year. Wow. And nobody misses if they can if they can get there anyhow. Like 
Howard is on oxygen 24 hours a day, and he comes to every reunion. Really? Yeah. And he comes with an oxygen tank? No, oh, yeah. You can't bring your own oxygen onto an airplane. So his son brings him to the airplane. With the airplane. oxygen. He has to hook into the airplane's oxygen. Then he has to, he has to call ahead, make all the arrangements ahead. Then the, wherever town he's in, for example, Seattle, some oxygen place from Seattle has to meet him at the plane and hook him in. And then he has to go to the hotel where they have already delivered all the oxygen bottles that he needs. But he would not miss a reunion. He will not miss a reunion. Nor will you. Unfortunately, I've been getting um, in contact with the son. He's been having, he's been very sick for the last uh, month. He's been in and out of the hospital. In his last three weeks, he's been in the hospital. And so mm -hmm. He's in bad shape, but he's a hell of a guy. So you're in possession of Hitler's hat. Did, one last question I've always been interested in since I found out about you. Did the Army have any feelings about people taking things like Hitler's hat? Well, if they did, they didn't say anything. <laughs> I'll tell you, first of all, I don't know if anybody... Um, I knew the division headquarters knew it, and I knew all I guys do it, but, but everybody got souvenirs. And, and sure. uh, nobody tried to muscle in. The only thing you had to do... It would have been you, different if you took a Van Gogh off the wall, right? Yeah, well, you know, I know some guys that did that too. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me put it to you this way. General Harry J. Collins. Yeah. From Howard, I received... He was our division commander. I received a... Um, Oh, by the way, after the war, never came back to the States. Who did? General Harry J. Collins. No kidding. Of the Rainbow Division. Yeah. And I never knew why, except that he did marry a German woman. Okay? But that still is no excuse, correct? But Howard sent me an article out of, I think, out of a, a Midwestern newspaper about Harry J. Collins, who, one of the reasons he never came back to the States, had taken over two or three castles on the Rhine in different areas. And the, when they went into the castles, they found all this artwork that nobody could ever find that he had stashed in these castles. Is he dead? He's dead. And so is his wife. It's quite a story. Uh, and one of the guys went to Europe last year, and he, he brought me back a picture that he took of, we call him Hollywood Harry, because he wore the scarf and all that mm -hmm. stuff, <laughs> and uh, of his grave. I says, I really didn't need this, you know. <laughs> well, no, you found Hitler's hat. Mm -hmm. And you have uh, used it. Uh, first of all, the Jewish War Veterans exhibit in, in Washington, they yep. borrowed it for a couple of years, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And they told you to hold on to it, as I remember the story, because because what? Oh, when it was supposed to go down, I, I received a call from the museum, and they said, don't send it down yet, because some skinheads walked into the museum. I see it had been on 6, 10, and 13, the three local channels, mm -hmm. uh, the night that we had the little ceremony at the Jewish Community Center. And what ceremony was that? Where I was officially um, lending the hat to, I see, the, to the, museum. the museum. And so all the three channels showed up. So the the, the skinheads, the, the Nazi organizations, the far right, they all have, they're all sophisticated. Everybody owns computers, you know. And um, these uh, skinheads walked into the museum and we said, we, they said, we understand that you have something coming down from Albany, New York. And so the museum said, we're going to beef up security and rebuild a, a special case for your hat. Uh, so wait until we call you that it's all done before you send the hat down. Did they do that? They did it, yeah. Did you go down to watch the exhibit? I went down. I went down for the opening of the, uh, the new exhibit that it was part of. Were people interested in it? Uh, yeah. 
I kept getting called. First they said they wanted it for three or four months, and then mm. they said they we hold it a few more months, and then you know this kept going on until till two years were up. And um, the reason was that it kept it attracted so much attention. They said they never had any single item that got the attention more than the uh, Hitler's hat exhibit. Now you've used this hat in other ways. You've used it uh, in education. You've gone around to schools, haven't you? Well, since 1995, I've been wanting to get a group together to go to schools. When I brought the hat with me to the reunion in in Seattle. That was the first time since the end of the war that my guys in the INR platoon saw the hat. Now, this hat had been sitting in your closet for a long, long time. It was sitting in my basement in my magic cabinet for over 50 years. And what made you not take it out before that? I didn't talk about the war. I didn't think about the war. I didn't, although my wife told me for a first couple of years I would get a little nightmare once in a while. But, But you put the war away. I put it away. I put it away, didn't talk about it, didn't mention it, nothing, until 1993. In 1993, I got a call from California from one of the guys in the radio section. I said, is this Rich, the guy that tells the jokes, blows the horn, and does all of that good stuff from the INR platoon? I said, yeah, this is him. Who's this? He said, Jack Summers. Oh, I said, radio section. He said, yes. I said, how'd you find me? He said, well, a guy that's in the list business, you know, you can buy a list of anything, mm-hmm. doctors, lawyers, whatever, uh, just joined our civilian organization. And um, we gave him, we, we'd been looking all over for you for years. And I, we gave him your name, and he punched a few buttons, and on his laser discs, he has about 90% of the people that own telephones, <laughs> and he, your name popped up. So that's how I got your name and address. And? And he says, he says we've been looking for you for years. I said, fine, you found me. What's next? <laughs> he, says, he, says, I, he says, the guys, where do I tell the guys? I said, well, where are the guys? He says, well, they'll be at the un- reunion next month. This, he called me in June. I said, tell me about the reunion. I'll be there. So the next month I came. And the first thing I did when I met sort of guys, and I recognized them all, the only thing they said was to me when I walked up to them, a bunch of them were, were talking in the lobby at a hotel. I walked up to them and they said, you know what the trouble with you is, Marowitz? I said, what's, what's the trouble? They said, you don't look as old as we do. Mm. <laughs> I said, well, thanks very I've much. I've seen pictures and it's true. <laughs> so, what did you do? I'm sorry, just to catch everybody up because we only have five minutes left. Well, what did you do to make a living after you left the Army? My father had a Coke factory. Mm-hmm. He had retired then he, had, he got itchy, and he decided to go back into it, and uh, he opened up a factory in Albany. Ah. And then I got into it, and he was very happy about that because my brother went from Harry James to Woody Herman, and, you know, he was, was definitely—my sister wasn't going to be in the business. So when I agreed to go into it, because the music business had changed. When I got out of the Army, yeah. I mean, the rock bands were coming in. And the big bands. The little there. bands were there. The big bands weren't. Mm-hmm. I was used to playing— First horn in, a, in you know in in a in a big brass section and and the, the other stuff you know you just you play anymore. I haven't picked it up in a couple of years, but I really should. I really L- should. Let's go back to the hat. Yeah. So now you take the hat out, you bring it to the reunion. Yep. And uh, and there were a couple of ladies, young women, from a Holocaust group because every place the, the the rainbow goes, a Holocaust group shows up, uh, and they were there to tape us. And to cut the story short. I said, what are you going to do with these tapes? They said, well, we used to bring the old-timers, you know, 
all the survivors of the Holocaust to the schools. When we found that the kids were falling asleep, they were walking out of the classroom. <laughs> and we said to the kids, what's your problem? They said, well, we see this on television. We've seen it before in the schools. Can't you show us something else? So they said, they asked the kids, what would you like to see? And they said, well, how about the liberators? How about the soldiers? So that's what we're doing now. We're taking these tapes to the classrooms. We get called back every year to some of the places now. We've been to the Tryon School, uh, where the Bloods and the Hoods and all these other peoples, you know, it's a, kids are sent from Brooklyn to the Bronx. We've been to the synagogues. We've been to the Holy Names Academy. We keep getting called back. It's been hugely successful, and it's great. No, it is great. So let me ask you, Hitler's hat. Is this a big part when you go into a school? Are oh, yeah. Fascinating oh, yeah. Somebody said to me, the hat is falling apart. Why don't you try to preserve it? I says, no. Every time I bring that hat to school and I get the attention, I get their attention, I can see Hitler spinning in his grave because I'm teaching everybody what he did to the world. And so that's why I take it every place I go. When I go to the schools, I just can't wait to bring it up. Richard, two other things very quickly. One is that there's a film being made about all of this, a documentary. Uh, we're going to be able to see this soon? Uh, yes, it's in the final stages of editing. It will go into the major film festival starting in November. And then where it'll appear, I can't tell you yet because I don't know, but it'll probably be in something like Discovery or History or one of those things. Will it be called The Man Who, F Who Found Hitler's Hat? No, the title is simple, Hitler's Hat. People want to read more about that. Where can they go? They want to read more about that. Just turn on the computer and punch in hitlershat.com. And what's your relation to Spielberg? Well, I got a call from Spielberg's New York office that they wanted to interview me. Uh, they sent a crew up to my home in Albany and interviewed me for an hour. And that's the only relationship I've had with him, except he sends me a New Year's card every now and then. <laughs> it's a nice thing. All I got to say is we've had a very fast hour with Richard Marowitz, an American soldier from an intelligence and reconnaissance platoon, a unit of the 42nd Rainbow Division during World War II, a real hero. He's a guy who found Hitler's hat, maybe by accident, but made it count so that people will never forget the Second World War, what happened there. And along the way, he did such things as help to liberate Dachau. So, all I have to say, Richard, is thank you for coming to see us, and oh. it was a wonderful hour. Thank you for asking me.
You've been listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store.